You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning, church family. Hope you guys are doing well. It's good to be here with you. For those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is John Hall. I am one of the elders here at Citizens Church. And man, it is a privilege and an honor to be with you here this morning, uh, to have this opportunity to be able to share with you from God's Word. And so uh, just thank you for that. So let's go ahead and let's jump in today. And so let's begin today with a question. What does a promise, and more importantly, what's done with the promise, speak into a person's integrity? And said a better way, what does the discipline and fortitude to keep a promise or an oath reveal about the character of a believer? See, we live in a day and an age where a person's word doesn't mean much anymore. The days of looking another person in the eye, giving your word, and sealing the deal with a handshake are all but gone, and the person who does business this way is foolish. But you name it, most dealings in society come with the expectation there will be the need for something included that is legally binding to both parties. Why? Because a long line of experience that has taught individuals, businesses, entities, and organizations that people cannot be taken at their word. This extends beyond the world of business. And without getting into a discussion about politics or the necessity of politics, why has our country become so cynical around the things the government tells us? Could it be years and even decades of the experience of the government telling one bold-faced lie after another? When a candidate runs for office and runs on a particular platform, the American confidence that candidate will even attempt to act on those things while in office is incredibly low. In other words, the American public expects that the government is lying. And why? Because we have years and years of experience of being lied to. So back to the question of the day. When does a promise, and more importantly, what's done with the promise, speak into a person's integrity? And said a better way, what does the discipline and fortitude to keep a promise or an oath reveal about the character of a believer? Jesus addressed it this way. Matthew 5, he says this, And again, you have heard that it was said of those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. And so before we dive into what Jesus is saying, what he meant by all of that today, I want to make sure that we have the context of the passage right. And so I want us to look at Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20. And so this is kind of foundational to this section of the Sermon on the Mount. And so, so far we have heard Jamin address two of the topics, one being anger, the other being lust. And so today we'll cover a third one, which is tackling oaths. But this is really the foundational part of all of that. The Bible says in verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but what? To fulfill them. So Jesus wasn't interested in doing away with the Old Testament. He was interested in fulfilling everything the Old Testament had said as it pointed back to him. He goes on to say, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. So there are three things that I want us to remember about this particular context. One is one I mentioned, that Jesus was not interested in abolishing those things, but rather to do what you and I could never do for ourselves, to perfectly, sinlessly 
keep those things and to be able to fulfill everything that is in the Old Testament. And then he goes on to say, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And here's the problem for all of us. Your righteousness doesn't exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. It doesn't exceed anyone else's. And on our own, we would never enter into the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus paid the price for that. And in Christ, we are gifted a righteousness that is foreign to us. We are gifted the very righteousness of Christ himself. And so for that reason, we're able to have eternal life as he saves our soul. But that's not where it ends. That's not the end of it. He goes a step further and he begins to address issues in life. And Christ's righteousness goes beyond saving our souls. Living in Christ and everything that comes with that allows us to live a life of flourishing. So as Jesus addresses these things, he talks about anger, as he talks about lust, as today we talk about promises or keeping oaths, those kinds of things, he intends for us to be able to step into this life in such a way through the use of his righteousness and be able to flourish in those things. And so far, we've listened to Jamin preach on those two things. And Jesus is going to address another issue today, oaths, by using the same formula that shows the common knowledge and even the misunderstanding of the matter at hand. And then he addresses the misunderstanding by using the phrase, you have heard that it was said. So every time he says that, you've heard that it was said, he's addressing an issue, a misconception that people would understand about that particular command. But then he says, but I say to you, and when he says that particular thing, he's addressing matters of the heart. He's taking us into a deeper understanding. So you've heard that what I said, that points back to the issue, the problem, the misconception. But I say to you addresses the matters of the heart. And so we're going to see that same scenario play out today in our passage of scripture as Jesus talks about how oaths correlate to the necessary integrity of a believer's life. Again, you've heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn in verse 33. See, Jesus is addressing in this moment an intentional perversion of a commandment found in Leviticus 19.12. Leviticus 19.12 says this, you shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Here's what the command in Leviticus 19 says actually is all about. It's about the character of God being displayed in the life of Israel. In the Old Testament, many times the name of an individual is directly related to that person or that individual's character. And so God's character as conveyed in his name is about truth and integrity. And those were things that were supposed to spill over into the life of Israel and their day-to-day dealings with one another. But their character and integrity was supposed to be marked by the fact that they are people of their word. And so when they said something was going to happen, then it would happen. But this isn't really the case. It's not the way it played out with evil and malicious intent. The religious elite devised a way to skate by this command. They created, if you will, a spiritual loophole in this command. Their way around the command was as long as you didn't make a promise or an oath in the name of the Lord, the promise or oath was not binding. In other words, you didn't have to keep it. And so this was their way around that particular matter. And so this is the first century version of crossing your fingers behind your back as you're making a deal or giving the old wink wink. And, and it's their way of getting around this. So by swearing by object, ideas, concepts, anything other than the name of the Lord, they were then free of the obligation in which they had promised. Supposedly, they had placed themselves under in making that particular promise. And in doing so, the masses were led by example to follow this. And so in practice and in essence in Israel, a person's word and their actions meant nothing. Their integrity didn't matter. 
Here's the way this false swearing was laid out in the first century. Swearing by the name of the Lord is a binding and absolute promise. So if you swear by God's name, you're bound to that particular promise according to the law. As an extension of that, if you swear by anything that was sanctified in God's name, that was considered an extension of making a promise in the name of the Lord, and therefore it was also binding. But by contrast, oaths that were sworn upon items that were not directly set aside for God's purpose or use could be reneged upon without consequence. In other words, to break a promise that was sworn on one of these unsanctified objects was seen as perfectly okay. They did not see that as a sin. They did not see anything wrong with that. And so there would be those who would make false promises and swear by heaven or by earth or by the city of Jerusalem or by the hair on your head, by anything. And in this bogus religious system, that was viewed as a proper spiritual loophole into the command to not swear falsely by God's name. So let's back up for a minute, okay? So we understand they have an integrity problem. They have a built-in integrity problem where they've twisted and they perverted Scripture so they can get around this thing, okay? So that's one of the things going on. But think for a minute about the progression of this section of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is reordering their minds and hearts around the intent behind the Ten Commandments. And this is not a reinterpretation of the Ten Commandments, but rather the proper interpretation of the Ten Commandments. He's starting from a place that everyone in that crowd would know because he's mentioning something that's basic morality to them, the Ten Commandments. And he's talking about the misconception. And he's talking about how there's a deeper intent behind that and understand how Jesus is fulfilling those things. And so when Jesus starts this section, he addresses murder as it correlates to anger. And then he addresses adultery as it correlates to lust and divorce. And if you're an Israelite, you know what the next point is, right? It's going to be stealing. Why would I say that? Why would it be stealing? Because in the Ten Commandments, command number six is you shall not murder. Command number seven is you shall not commit adultery. So command number eight, the next point is you shall not steal. Incidentally, Command number nine is you should not bear false witness. So Jesus is making it plain that the practice of setting up an oath with the intent to lie is essentially stealing with words. Not to mention bearing false witness with your life. It is the intentional attempt to promise one thing that is good and deliver something that is far, far, far less. So before we go down the path of thinking, oh man, those sorry people in the first century, can you believe that they would do something like that and try to get away and intentionally pull the wool over people's eyes and go through all this? Let's think through how they were intentionally lying and living without integrity. And I want to ask you a question. What spiritual loopholes do we allow into our own lives here in the 21st century? A spiritual loophole is this. It is the attempt to avoid a clear command or precept of God by manipulative means. It's the attempt to get what I selfishly want while maintaining the appearance of religious fidelity. In other words, I look the part, but I'm not the part. The thinking goes something like this. I know what I want, and I don't care if it's wrong. I only care about keeping up appearances. It is the attempt to sidestep doing the hard things that are required of disciples, things like living with enough integrity to be transparent with both God and those we're in community with. It is the attempt to dodge the need for confession and repentance because somehow there must be a shortcut to what I want and a weak justification for wanting those things. 
And in this line of thinking, the loophole becomes the perceived shortcut to achieve good things, but in the end, it leads to my demise. So it goes something like this. The perception is my anger, I'm justified in my anger, and my anger will lead me to justice. But the reality is this, my anger leads me to my own demise and the destruction of every relationship around me, even the ones on the periphery. The perception is this, my lust will lead me to intimacy. But the reality is this, my lust robs me of even the possibility of intimacy. And it even robs me of the time necessary to build up relationships with those I love most and those that need me the most. The perception is this, my lack of integrity does not matter and it really doesn't hurt anyone. And the reality is my lack of integrity damages my ability to live out what should be most true about me. That is that Jesus is king. And I am free from the power of sin, shame, and guilt through Jesus Christ. So for many in this room and those who are watching online, the truth is we're more interested in appeasing God or trying to please God than we are getting to know him. We're more interested in keeping God off of our backs so that we can live our lives the way that we desire, the way that we want, rather than getting to know him deeply so we might walk in all that he has for us. We play religion in the attempt to win God over, to try to get him to like us, or even worse, to score enough brownie points with him to feed our poor theology and our misconceptions about God. And in doing so, we show we don't understand the gospel and we don't live faithfully to what the gospel has provided. And to make this point, let's imagine for a minute that we're on a date. If you're married, you're dating your spouse. If you're not married, you're dating someone else. And let's imagine on this date that the other person communicates to you that they have no intention of getting to know you better. They're not interested in getting to know you at all. In fact, they're only on this date because they're hoping you'll pick up the tab for the meal so they can enjoy some good food while you're out and about. In fact, not only that, but they would like for you to sit on the other side of the restaurant so they don't have to talk to you, they don't have to see you, and they can enjoy their food in peace and quiet. Now, how would that make you feel? Now, if you've been married for a time, you're, you're probably thinking, that doesn't sound so bad. <laughs> but you know, seriously, in, in reality, there, there are probably two realities that are going to come from this exchange. When it comes time to pay the bill, you may tell the other person to stick it in their ear. That you can pay for your own meal, I'm not picking it up. And the second reality is this, there's not going to be a second date. Okay, And so here's my point. We often treat our relationship with God similar to this. We just want God to pick up the eternal tab through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ, but we're really not interested in getting to know him. And let me tell you something, this can't be. Heaven is not going to be filled with religious people who are doing religious things. Heaven is going to be filled with people who love Jesus and love him deeply. And so that is the reality we face, and yet this was the problem of those in the first century hearing the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' message is clear. The disciple walks in integrity. Disciples are people of their word. They are people who love other people because of the love that Jesus first showed them. And then they have this radical love for Jesus that pushes them towards obedience. Not out of obligation because of a deep love for him. And they hold to what is spelled out in scripture and in the flourishing that that truth provides. And yet there was this systemic integrity problem that Jesus was addressing. And if we can understand what was fueling their willingness to walk without integrity, it may help us to be able to address some of these same issues in our own heart. So I think there were several reasons for this in the first century. And so here are a few of them. One is they had a failure to understand the nature and the character of God. Now we all know that it is sin that wreaks havoc and destruction in our lives. And the best way to combat sin 
is to constantly confess sin before God and others and trust that God is both faithful and just to forgive us in those things. And in doing so, the believer lives a life of freedom in Christ to carry out the things that God has asked of us in Scripture, not out of obligation, like I said, but rather out of freedom to walk in those things. We're free from shame and guilt because in Christ, our righteousness does exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And when you don't understand who God is or what he's about, it is impossible it is impossible to live that life. You cannot do it. Instead, that life will be marked by a string of broken promises to God, to others, and especially to ourselves. So they failed to understand the character and nature of God. They also made an attempt to please God or appease God rather than to actually know him. And this is not a people who want to follow God from their hearts, but they rather want God out of their business so they can go do their own thing, what they've planned, what they've desired. It's a subconscious way of stating that I know better than God. I know what's best for me, and I don't need God to tell me those things. But maybe the most insidious, evil part of it was this. It was a religious belief system that had placed a priority on a man-made religious rule instead of Scripture itself. This is the way it worked. Over time, a few centuries before Christ was born, the Pharisees and the scribes created a running commentary to the Old Testament called the Mishnah. And in this commentary, they tried to think through the implications of all the commands and precepts in the Old Testament. In doing so, they would add commands to scriptures that were not there. So as they were going through it, they would make their own commentary on it. And they would say, you know, logically, we should probably do this. And as they thought through those things, they began to add those things to scripture over time, their ideas began to have more authority than Scripture itself. I want you to see how this plays out in Scripture. If you will, take a look at Matthew chapter 15. The first 20 verses, we're just going to spend a few minutes uh, in this text. And I just want to read this to you. I want to point this out, and this is how it worked. Then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem, and they said, notice the question, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? So here's the question. Why are they breaking the tradition of the elders? Not why are they disobeying scripture. Why are they breaking the tradition of the elders? And Jesus flips this on them, turns them back on them. He says, for they do not wash their hands when they eat. And here's Jesus' reply to this. And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? So here's what they were doing. They had placed the priority on their tradition, on their man-made rules, and Jesus flips that and he says, Scripture ought to have the priority. So I would follow Scripture over those traditions. And Jesus gives an example of how they break that. Verse 4, for God commanded, honor your father and your mother. It's commandment number 5 in the Ten Commandments, basic morality. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. In other words, it fell to the children to take care of their parents as their parents grew older. But here's the rule they made up. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what would you have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. In other words, what he's saying is the money that you set aside to take care of your parents in their old age, which is your biblical responsibility. If you say, I'm going to take that money that I would use to take care of you, and instead I would give that to God, the appearance of religion, then you don't have to honor your father or your mother. Here's what Jesus thinks of that. Verse 6, he says, so for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and he said to them, hear and understand. 
It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. And then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? And he answered, and listen to what he says. Heed the warning. Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Leave them alone. They are blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Now, there are a few things I want us to pick up out of Matthew 15. I want you to notice first that Jesus is calling out the Pharisees and the scribes for their commitment to their own teachings and traditions and turning their backs on the clear teaching of God's word. In other words, they had punted on the authority of scripture to accept a religion of their own making. What a shame and how dangerous that is. And in doing so, the Pharisees and scribes had essentially made void the word of God. Jesus is about to take this dispute to the next level. He doesn't stop with calling out their doctrinal error. He goes to the root of the problem. And here's what I want all of us to pay attention to. Taking a passage from Isaiah 29, he gets to their foundational problem. They have the appearance of right religion, but in reality, their heart is far from God. Listen to what Jesus is really saying in this moment. They have no relational integrity. They give the appearance as if they care for God, and in reality, their heart is far, far, far from God. And so the primary problem isn't necessarily their behavior. The problem is the heart. And the root cause of all sin is a busted, broken heart. And here's my fear in all of this. Some of us are guilty of similar things. We go through the motions of loving God while never really loving him. We do good things. We get active in a church at a level that is acceptable. We work hard. We have friendships. We treat other people well. And we, doing all of this, we lull ourselves into believing everything is fine because why? We look religious. It seems easy to look the part without actually being the part. And it's easy to look religious and never love the God who's supposed, who's the supposed object of vain worship. And our biggest integrity problem turns out to be there's no integrity in our love for God. And so many of the things that I love about this church is the fact that we have such a vibrant children's ministry. And one of the many things that I love about our children's ministry is the depth of theology that our children learn while there. When your kids are being taken care of during the service, know there are people who love them, who pray over them, who play with them, and care for them deeply. And I'm so grateful for all of those things. But they are also, they get to hear this rich, developed theology. And they learn these in simple ways that are easy to grasp, which is a beautiful thing. And so one of the five basic theological tenets that are taught in children's ministry is this. We all have a sick heart. Our heart is not well. It is not in the right place, the place that it should be, and how true that is. But praise be to God, there's a cure for our sick heart. And his name is Jesus Christ. And in our main text in Matthew 5, Jesus is going to address our matters of the heart. So he's talked about, you've heard that it was said. So he's addressed the issue. We've got an integrity problem here. We've got a systemic integrity problem because we're looking for loopholes to dodge what God is actually 
asking of us so that we can avoid being people without integrity and we can avoid keeping our word and all those things. But here's what Jesus says back in Matthew 5, verse 34. He says, but I say to you, don't take an oath at all. I want you to follow that one away. We'll come back to it in just a minute. Don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair, white or black. And so Jesus begins to address the folly that is found in the spiritual loophole of making promises or oaths that you don't intend to keep because you never made it in the name of the Lord and how foolish that is. And I want you to watch what Jesus is doing in this moment because I'm going to say one of the dumbest things I'm going to say in this sermon. Jesus is a genius. He is. I mean, he's doing two things simultaneously. At the same time, two things are going on. Here's the first thing that's going on. He's listing out the things that people would make a non-binding oath by. Heaven, earth, Jerusalem, the hair of your head. To show how badly they've missed the point of both the Ten Commandments and the commandment in Leviticus 19.12. The intent of those commands was never to create two categories by which you can make an oath. One being binding and the other being non-binding. That was never the intent of the passage. They missed it completely. The intent was to display God's character as full of integrity and truth. And as a result of this, his people were to strive to be people of integrity and truth. And the second thing that's going on simultaneously, that's going on at the same time that he's showing these people, is he's also showing that all the things in this list fall under his dominion and his reign. When you swear by these things, in essence, you're swearing by things that exist by the character and nature of God. These people believed through their own cleverness that they had sidestepped a requirement that God had of them, when in reality they were swearing by things over which God already reigns. And in clearly stating this reality, Jesus is shooting down the idea that you can make an oath or a promise that is non-binding. That's foolishness. It doesn't exist in Scripture. The Lord's expectation is that his people would keep their word and live by the commitments that they've made. And in this moment, we're watching people come to a realization that swearing by things in life that they have no control over does not work. And the more important realization is that they have been deceived and had certainly deceived themselves over their capacity to outrun or to sidestep the sovereign rule of God. And Jesus is calling his people to a higher ethic. And this is a better way to demonstrate with their lives what is true about the radical change that Jesus has brought about in their heart. So let's go back and let's take a step back. Let's go back to the admonition that Jesus makes to take no oath at all. What did he mean by that? And I think this statement makes perfect sense when you see it within the context of their integrity problem. Jesus' call to not take an oath at all isn't because he's opposed to making promises. That's not the case. There are plenty of places in life where it's necessary. When you, turn in, when you uh, step into a legal or a civic duty that you have, some like serving on a jury, sometimes you have to take an oath. How about a wedding vow? You want to stand up and commit your life to someone who's not willing to promise their life to you? I'm not. I'm not in for that. So I think a promise is necessary in that moment. How about next week? In this place, we'll have a celebration service. It's one of my favorite Sundays every year. We can celebrate new life together as people have had babies and families have adopted children. And then we also see new spiritual life as people have been radically saved out of their sin. And then we get to see them be baptized and we get to celebrate all of that. And it's a beautiful thing. 
And all across the congregation, we'll have parents stand up who have new babies, who have adopted children into their family, and we'll pray over them. And in that moment, as they stand, you know the commitment they're making? They're committing that they will raise up their children in the love and admonition of the Lord, that they will tell their children about Jesus constantly. If that's not a promise, I don't know what one what one is. And so it's important that we recognize that there are points in life, there are moments in life that we have to make promises. So Jesus' point is that in most of life, the disciple doesn't make a promise or an oath because they are so unnecessary. Why are they so unnecessary? The reason for this is because the disciple is the walking, breathing embodiment of their Savior's truth. When they say something, they mean it and they go do it because they live with integrity. They don't need to make an oath because they're the walking, living, breathing oath. The disciples' word is their bond, and so the promise is not needed. And as Jesus calls us to walk in integrity, there exists the real possibility that many have not done this. And instead of walking in integrity, we've built up an existence on half-baked truths and even blatant lies. For you, life has been a string of broken promises, and I'm sorry for that. Maybe they're broken promises that you made to God. Because of the shame and guilt you harbor from failing God so many times. Maybe for others, it's broken promises that you've made to people around you that you care deeply about, but you couldn't bear the thought that they might actually find out who you really are. And so you lied to them time and time again. Maybe you're on the other side of that. Maybe you're the victim of that. Maybe you're the recipient of someone who has lied to you over and over and over again. And for you, I am really, really sorry. And maybe. Your only mistake in all of that is that you trusted the wrong person. But maybe, just maybe, the greatest lies we tell are the ones we tell ourselves. Have you been lying to yourself about the value of your own morality? About how good a person you are? You're not perfect, but hey, you're better than most, right? Have you been lying to yourself about your ability to defeat the sin that so easily entangles you? It's not that big of a deal. I mean, you could stop it or you can master it at any time, right? You just haven't decided to do that yet. Have you been lying to yourself about your ability to fix what's wrong with you, that someday you're going to get serious about your sin problem and someday you're going to get serious about your relationship with God? Hey, you've got plenty of time, right? Have you been lying to yourself about your ability to win over God's love and approval through your own actions and your own deeds? Have you convinced yourself that God doesn't love the current version of you but it would have been pressed, if not blown away with the fixed up version of you five years from now. Have you been lying to yourself about your need for the gospel to save you, well, from you? You're not the problem, though. It's just really a weird set of circumstances that has led you to this point in life where you're not a person of your word and you have no integrity. It's a pandemic, right? I mean, everybody suffers during that time. Your integrity problem really isn't your fault. My prayer for you in all of this is that the Holy Spirit would open your eyes to the deceptions and the lies in which you're living under. And he would wake you up to the reality of who God is. And if this is you, I have great news. Not only does God care about these matters, but more importantly, he cares about you. He loves you as you are. He loves the broken, busted current version of you with all your sins, with all of your issues, even with your lack of integrity, he has made a way for you to be delivered from the string of lies that you've told yourself. And his name is Jesus Christ. And in this moment, 
Jesus is about to reveal the solution. And here is Jesus' answer to the issue of living with integrity. And we find this in verse 37 of Matthew 5. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. See, Jesus' answer to all of this is simply to be people whose yes means yes and their no means no. The disciple's life is marked by integrity. And when the disciple gives their word to something, they back it up with their lives. Their yes means yes. When the disciple says no to something, those boundaries are dictated by healthy relationships with God and with other people. And the disciple is constantly searching God's heart, both in scripture and in prayer, for the wisdom to know what to say yes and no to. And can you imagine anything more freeing than this? Instead of jumping through some man-made spiritual loophole, you get to simply be a person of your word. And the significance of what Jesus says in this moment seems so simple, and yet at the same time incredibly profound to the effect that it has on the lives of the disciples and those around them. And out of this simple statement that Jesus is making in verse 37, there are three mandates placed on believers. There's a mandate for relationships, there's a mandate for the gospel, and there's a mandate for the disciples' direction in life. Let's talk about relationships first. In the first century, most of the malicious broken promises revolved around an economic system where people bartered for necessities. They would promise on non-binding things, the spiritual loophole, in order to lie to people to barter better and take advantage of them. This means the broken promise always affected other people. The broken promise was never in isolation, but rather used to take advantage of others. And Jesus had something better in mind for our relationships. Jesus had in mind two things with this call for integrity as it relates to others. The first thing is what I call stop stealing with words. I had the privilege of uh, growing up in West Texas, and I had uh, two grandfathers in my life that were both godly men, and uh, they were the walking embodiment of integrity. And so if I ever wondered what a disciple looked like, I just simply had to stop, take a step back, and watch them live for a little while. Grateful for that. I remember one time uh, shortly after I had gotten a driver's license and I had a car and I had been out doing things uh, in my car that I shouldn't have been. I've been driving it recklessly around with friends and I had broken some small something on it. And instead of owning that up and going to my parents about that, I had this idea. I'll just drive out to my grandfather's farm who was a cotton farmer. And uh, he knows about fixing things, and he could probably help me, and my parents would never have to find out about this. So I drive out to my grandfather's farm. Sure enough, he's in the barn. He's working on a tractor at that particular time. I thought, this is great. He's already in mechanic mode. We can fix my car. No problem. I'll be back on the road. My parents will never find out. And so I came to him, and I said this. I said, hey, granddad, I just wanted to come and hang out with you today. And while we're hanging out, I thought we might take a look at my car and to see if, you know, there are things we could fix, improve, whatever. And without looking up, my grandfather said to me, do you think your parents will buy that lie? And in that moment, I knew and he knew that I was lying. And he said this, and I'll never forget it. He said, the best things in life happen walking through the front door. Not the side door, not the back door. They happen through the front door. And here's what he meant by that. You will miss out on the best things in life unless your life is marked by integrity and honesty. 
And then he would follow that up with three reminders about what living with integrity actually meant. Here are the three things he would always tell me. He said, you stand for the truth when no one else stands with you. He said, it is better to be alone in the truth than to be with a great company built on a lie. The second thing that he would say is you stand for the truth even when it makes you look bad. He said, John, he said, you're a sinner. You're going to make mistakes all of your life. And thankfully, most of those mistakes can be corrected. Confess and repent where you've sinned and live in the forgiveness and freedom that Christ has provided. And the third thing he would tell me is you stand for the truth even when it costs you a great deal to do so. There's always, always, always a price to be paid for standing in the truth of Jesus Christ. Let us never forget that. But Jesus is also reminding us not only to just quit stealing with words, he's reminding us that living with integrity is something that is possible. It's something we can actually do. It's not this high ethic that only Jesus could reach. Jesus meant for his people to be marked by honesty in all of our dealings. He wanted us to understand that living a life of integrity is a way that helps us flourish. And the advantages of life that come with lying and manipulating in others that he doesn't want any part of that. He doesn't want us to have any part of lying and manipulating to others, but rather living in the light of who Jesus is. And then there's a mandate for the gospel. Jesus also had in mind that our integrity would speak a truth about the power of the gospel. And as Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, we are to be people who embody that truth. On the cross and in his resurrection, Jesus spoke a better truth than the one that we had imagined for ourselves and even earned for ourselves. A better truth than the litany of accusations the devil would bring against us. A better truth than the lies that we had sold ourselves on. And in that resurrection power, we operate in such a way that shows to a dying world that truth and integrity lead to a better way. They lead to a life of flourishing. And as we live in that and we live in that flourishing, there are things that cascade down from that. Living out the gospel In truth and integrity, we use strength and we use advantages in life to help others in desperate need, not to take advantage of them. We do this because we see others as Jesus sees them. People in dire straits who need a concerned friend and a helping hand more than they need a judge and a jury. And so we live in light of that. Jesus also gave us a mandate for direction in the disciples' life. And the clear message for the believer is that Jesus expects us to live a life marked by his truth. That truth is based on Scripture, and His unchanging Word is a guide for every step in life. And Jesus' call to integrity wasn't just something for the disciple to do. It was the mark, the way the disciple lived. But all of this talk about integrity, it begs a question, does it not? What if that's not you? What if you're not a person of integrity? What do we do then? What if my yes actually means no, and what if my no actually means yes? What if I don't shoot straight with people and constantly lie to make myself look better and lie to try to manipulate others for my own advantage? And here's where I want to encourage you and remind you of a sober truth. Your integrity problem doesn't get fixed with a single sermon. This takes a repentant heart It takes time, and it takes an intentional effort to press into Jesus. But the good news is is that Jesus died so that sins like a lack of integrity would not enslave us. And through Jesus, there's not only hope, but there's a better way to live, a way that he empowers. And maybe the first step in living a life of integrity is owning the fact that that isn't you. 
We have a saying around here. And the saying goes like this, and you probably, if you've been here any time, you've heard it before, but it's okay to not be okay. It's just not okay to stay that way. And if I could apply this to where we've been over the last few weeks, I imagine it would be something like this. It's okay to struggle with anger, but it's not okay to allow anger to destroy your life and burn down every bridge and relationship you have when Jesus is offering you something better. It's okay to struggle with lust, but it's not okay for lust to rob you of your humanity. It's not okay to see others as mere objects when in reality, they are incredible people who've been made in the image of God. It's okay to struggle with a lack of integrity, but it's not okay to allow the lies that you've told yourself to rob you of a life living out the truth that's provided in Jesus Christ. And could we begin this journey in integrity by trusting that God is who he says he is? Could we trust the one who loved us enough to die in our place and conquer death can also handle the fact that right now in this moment, you're struggling with the fact of whether or not you should even tell the truth about your problem with integrity. And could we, for a moment, in this moment, trust him enough and believe that his calling us out on integrity issues is for our good? It is for our good. And listen to me, if that's you, then I beg you, I am begging you right now, please Please, please, don't turn your back and walk away from what Jesus has to offer you because what Jesus offers you is so much better. My prayer is that we would always be a people whose brokenness would cause us to lean into Jesus rather than to run from him in shame. And I thank God we're a church who loves people who are broken and encourages people to walk toward Jesus, not to run away from me. One of my many prayers for Citizens Church is that we would be a people in a church marked by integrity. That when people name Citizens Church right here in Plano, Texas, the first thought would be there is a people with a deep, deep love for Jesus who will shoot straight with you about anything and everything, even the difficult things. I thank God that I have the opportunity to serve this church and what a pleasure it is to be a part of Citizens Church who wants great things for its people but wants even more for you to walk in light of who Jesus is. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for this day. I thank you for this moment. I thank you for this opportunity to take a a sober and sometimes even a hard look at our own lives in light of Scripture and what it has to say. I pray if there are those that are in this building, and I pray if there are those who are listening online today that are struggling with integrity, struggling with sin, I pray that you would make that apparent to them. I pray that you would open the eyes of their heart, that they might see themselves for who they really are in light of who you are. And I pray that you would even now begin to change their life. I thank you that you're a God who saves us. I thank you that you're a God who loves us, and that while we are yet sinners, you would take care of us. You would not turn away from us. I praise you for that, and I thank you for that. I pray that we would always be a church that loves you and loves the sinner and wants to help people. And I pray all of this in the name of your precious Son, Jesus Christ.